smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am your co-host, Cliff Schechter, uh, and today I'm your other host, Cliff Schechter. Um, John is unable to join us today, so I will be running solo, but this should be a lot of fun. We have a great guest for you. Um, we are lucky enough to have on the chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper. Uh, who we've had on uh, previously, David, you know, I don't know where to go to to um, list all of David's accomplishments, but he is a former city council member in Cincinnati, as well as a Hamilton County commissioner of a 700, 800,000 person county. Is that right, David? That sounds about right. Yep, pretty much, um, yep. David was a former uh, Democratic nominee for attorney general. Um, he is, the, as I said, a long now five years chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, Um but he has a whole nother life, a um, few other lives. He originally, he back in the day, and we're going to talk about this, when he was with a, a big think tank in D.C., Center for Security and International Studies, Strategic International Studies. David used to go to St. Petersburg and sit across the table talking through an interpreter. There's a fun story there with a guy uh, who was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, some guy named Vladimir Putin. I think you've heard of him. Um, and David, biggest of all, is out with his third novel right now, getting rave reviews from the Wall Street Journal, among other places. I've read it. It's terrific. And I think it's actually relevant to some of the things we're going to be talking about, very much so. Um, it, it's called The Voter File. It is a follow-up on his earlier uh, novels, The People's House and The Wingman. And um, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's all over the place. And it covers, it's a political thriller. It's excellent. So, Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks. Good to be good to be back. I realize I've got to do an ad, so I'm going to jump in quickly, and then we'll be right back, folks. Okay, uh, great. Talk about David's book. So I just want to tell you about Omaha Steaks, folks. Um, the, the, the sizzle of delicious offering from Omaha Steaks on the grill is your official soundtrack to the summer. Omaha Steaks offers a variety of options that everyone loves. Steak, seafood, seafood, seafood chicken, pork, burgers, easy-to-make meals, desserts, and more. Right now, Omaha Steaks is offering a limited-time deal. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code LIBERAL, but you can spell that, folks, into the search bar and order the Grand Summer Grill Out Package. That sounds pretty yummy. Uh, today, order this package, and Omaha Steaks will throw in four free burgers and four free gourmet jumbo franks. Wow. Um, every order is flash-frozen, vacuum-sealed, safely del- delivered to your door in a cooler with dry ice. Uh, Omaha Steaks is not just steak. It's a culinary masterclass, and I can say this. I've, they've sent me it and i've had it and it is delicious and i bet david david have you had an omaha steak before Are you a steak guy i don't think i have but now i might just have to go get one after your description see right 100 years of family tradition exclusive premium beef age to peak tenderness and guaranteed perfection with every bite go to omahasteaks.com type liberal in the search bar and order grand summer grill out package and once again, you'll get four free burgers, four free jumbo franks. Fill your freezer with enough gourmet food to keep your grill fired up all summer long with Omaha Steaks. That's omahasteaks.com. Enter the code liberal in the search bar. All right, guys. Now back to Dave and I are now hungry, but we're still going to talk about the book before we eat. Um, what's the best place we can start with all this? I want to say quickly, because you are, in fact, a lawyer, too. Um, for people, we've got breaking news. It's worth noting that in the Trump versus Mazar's case, it's just been the, the, the uh, ruling has just been issued seven to two um, that Trump, in fact, does have to uh, share his tax returns. But 
you're this is where you're going to get this stuff better than me as a non-lawyer. My understanding is though they tossed it back to a lower court. So in a manner of speaking, they may have pulled a fast one because we may not get to see anything before the election. Is that do you know if that's accurate? Uh, it looks like I'm trying to. I'm also trying to catch up on that as well. I mean, the 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 big news is is the ruling that Trump is not above the law here and other areas, but they are sending it back to um, the lower court to work out. I assume what has to be released. Um, I can't say that. You know, I, I haven't read the decision. I was worried they were going to punt it, but it's hard to say that remanding is punting it. I mean, that's pretty standard. It, it's not as if the Supreme Court is going to get into every minutia of how you're dealing with, with what they just ordered. So, I, it, but it, it certainly could delay it until, until after, but the principle that you, you somehow are above it all that Trump thinks is, um, is, has been thoroughly rejected. And as, as people are saying, even, um, his two, uh, his two guys, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh apparently ruled against him, which is, uh, which, you know, m- must've meant it was not a close call. Yeah. Right, the Kavanaugh one I'm shocked um, by. Gorsuch is, yeah. is so it was it was Alito and um, Alito and Thomas are the two. That, oh, I always write them off. But, you know, I think this is why it, about two hours ago Trump tweeted presidential harassment out of the blue. <laughs> I know yeah, he tweets that it. a lot, but someone must have clued him in what was coming. Yeah, I basically the way I start off all of these things are, and again, it doesn't mean I love any of the conservative justices with my opinions being what they are, but but I start off with. Uh, Thomas and Alito are basically Republicans in robes. No, no prince. They're like Scalia. The, the principle doesn't matter. They're going to find for whatever benefits the Republican. And I hate to say that because I believe in our institutions, but that's who they are. I pretty much believed Kavanaugh to be that way. So he sort of shocked me on this one. Maybe he he, he did a head fake because he realized they're going to lose anyhow. So he might as well try to show some independence. And you know, whereas I will give some credit. You know, first of all, in my mind, Gorsuch is sitting in a stolen seat that they never should have had. That's not his fault, but that's their faults, Republicans. Right. And and um, when it comes to Roberts, you know, I will say those two, at least they're conservative. I disagree with them. I think especially Roberts, who's been a lot around longer on things like, you know, gun cases, campaign finance, voting rights has damaged our democracy in a huge way. Uh, but I will still say at least he's shown a modicum of independence, you know, in the past when it came to, to the ACA ruling and the, and some of the more recent ones. And Gorsuch is showing a little bit too, so it's good to know that at least yeah. they're as conservatives, they're willing to hear in there do what they think is right. Does well, this morning, and again, I'm not, I don't want to be, an, I don't want to claim to be an expert on this one, but Gorsuch ruled with the four liberal justices for the Creek Nation on a major dispute well, there. So good. that was yeah. a five-four with Gorsuch. So another, and um, he wrote the opinion. Wow. So. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen it. We've seen over the decades. I don't want to get too hopeful, and there are some bad decisions that frustrate us. But we've seen over the decades that, um, you know, sometimes you have, you know, the Stevens or some of the others that that um, or Souter that surprise, and hopefully, hopefully, Let's we see honest. that here on some things at least. I mean, Democrats have, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter was. People may not know this is the only president to never appoint a Supreme Court justice in the history of our country. Um, so honestly. You know, we got two from Obama. We got two from Clinton, you know, and otherwise, I mean, essentially over the last 40, 50 years, how many I'd have to sit there and count how many conservatives have appointed seven, 10. I don't even know in the end, you know, and so we've we've relied on the suitors and the Stevens and the Blackmans and people like that, uh, you know, even on some cases, uh, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, even on a few cases, Kennedy, you know, having some some, you know, putting principle ahead of 
of uh, affiliation and doing the right thing. So, right. you know, I guess that's where well, we are. It looks like Kavanaugh and Gorsuch also, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion where they wrote, in our system of government, as this court has often stated, no one is above the law. The principle applies, of course, to a president. So it's going to be an interesting day on uh, Twitter with Trump. I'll say that. Yeah, it'll be fun. So, but, we but I do to... think that, that despite the despite the good ruling, I do think it, it looks like there certainly will be delay before we all see what's in his tax returns. Well, you know, luckily, um, uh, when you got you know, and we'll get into this too. Is uh, I'd like to talk about your book first, but luckily, when we have you know Trump's favorite pollster Rasmussen saying he's down fifty forty, uh, it may be that we hopefully right. don't even need to see those to to finish him off. But why don't we first talk about your book? You know, uh, let me start with a really interesting conversation, David, you know, my wife, Anne, who has been involved in politics too, and worked in, in, in nonprofits politics. We were having a conversation this morning. Um, and, you know, we were talking about how shocked we were still that Ohio was an eight point defeat, you know, back in, in, you know, back in 2016, that obviously none of us expected Wisconsin, um, Michigan and Pennsylvania to go for the Republicans. They all did by very small, Amounts. I think Pennsylvania may have been the only one that was even over a point. But the eight-point Ohio victory was especially shocking. And that got us into the conversation of, you know, look, we know that Republicans broke into voter files, didn't they? I mean, we know they that, that not Republicans, excuse me, we know that Vladimir Putin and Russians broke into to, to some of uh, these things. Um, we know they were mess, mucking around in voter registration files and the rest. You know, I mean, there's no proof that they changed any votes. But of course, with the plot of your book being what it is, which is if you can have access to a voter file, you can cause a lot of damage, which I think you can explain some of that. I'll let you explain it to people because um, it's fascinating. I mean, do you think that could have played a role? Do you think they could have mucked around, you know, in, in registration, things like that, and maybe let people to stay home who otherwise would have been contacted to turn out or things of that nature? Do you have any opinions on that? You know, I mean, if if you go back through the details of what was hacked from the DNC, you know, they're they're kind of thrown together as if they were equal. It's it's emails like John Podesta's and and DNC emails and yeah. information and Here's then um, we'll polling on, uh, data. Yeah, and, and they mentioned polling data and then they mentioned voter data and they they act like they're all sort of the same. And the point of this book is to say, oh no no. In the grand scheme of politics, and you would know this, the voter data is the crown jewel. And if you have access to a campaign's or a party's voter data, uh, and you're doing what they were doing in 16 around things like Cambridge Analytica, right. that is that is the you know the, the voter data that what's in what's in each candidate campaign or parties, you know whatever they they all have different names depending on what systems they use. But that is that's your game plan of how you win an election, and the and the point of the book is to say, and and again, it's an, it's fiction, but that is if you were trying to really mess with a campaign, far more damage than just grabbing their polling, which I think they tried to get, and far more well, damage than making Podesta look bad. Dominic, right? So right. Know that. Is exactly. But if you have the campaigns, you know, categorization of all their voters and who's the who are the turnout voters and who are the persuasion voters, and what your game plan is for the last month. That's how you really know what the campaign is thinking about winning or losing. And this this book is sort of the worst case scenario of what would happen or could happen if uh, you know foreign entities with some ill will did that. Um, and it's fiction, but I also would say that 
it's ex if if someone's looking to meddle in 2020, oh, yeah, they're looking at voting machines, they're looking at social media disinformation, but you bet they're trying to get their hands on this stuff because in right. the end, it's become the heart of campaigns more than more than you know when I first started running 20 years ago. I'd knock on doors. I'd I'd write down to the person like me. Do they want a yard sign? Like that was kind of the extent of what you built. Now it's this very intense building of a database that that I think is is both helpful but also adds a lot of risk. And one of the things I I, I did here was to be a little transparent. You know, voters, frankly, just like we all know, Facebook has data and other entities have data. I think it's responsible for people in politics to acknowledge our voter files are also rich in personal data. And we all need to treat them very carefully and be very, you know, right. treat them as securely as we expect private companies to treat our data. Um, so what I'd love for you to do, I mean, I, I brought that up, David, because again, you know, my wife, my wife Anne, is a, you know, grew up on the on the west side of Cincinnati as a Democrat. You know what that's like. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, I ended up moving here. I'm a, originally an East Coaster uh, because we met, and she convinced me. And by the way, I'm a big Cincinnati booster and love it here could talk all day about it. Um, but to get to the point, you know, when, when you start looking at, at the politics here, you know, it just Ohio's never seemed like an eight point state. You know, Obama won it twice. George W. Bush won it twice. Clinton won it twice. Where, you know, the, the in 2018, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm going from memory on this. I believe the, we added all the congressional votes in the state. Democrats lost by two points and maybe one point. If you add all the state legislative seats, I mean, at worst, we're a slight lean Republican swing state. And so, you know, that eight point uh, advantage, and that's what made me start thinking about your book. And again, you know, I mean, obviously, we had Comey reading out that coming out with that ridiculous statement that others, Nate Silver and others said, on average, cost Hillary Clinton 3.5 points across the board. That's some of it. We've got the, the unprecedented voter suppression. They're trying to do it again. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about that at some point. Uh, at the time, it was Secretary of State John Husted, who's now sadly Lieutenant Governor. It's now Frank LaRose, um, where they, if you hadn't, what, answered, uh, if you hadn't, I'm trying to remember what it was, if you hadn't voted in one of the last elections or something of that nature, they right. purged you from the files. Uh, that, I mean, when you start adding up a couple of those things, and if you look at it, Certainly before 2016, Ohio was considered the preeminent up there with Florida, the two swing states. So it's believable right. that they would have performed more hijinks here than other places. And again, I'm not trying to say they changed votes. There's no proof of that. There is proof right. they got into registration. And so I just, you know, maybe just tell me what you think a little bit more about that. And maybe you can take that then and, and sort of from there jump off into the plot of your book, whatever you want to share so you don't get sure. away the end. Go for it. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I would say that the most, still the the most cha the most um, troubling election in Ohio in a long time because it was closer was '04. Yeah. Um, with Blackwell and Karl Rove and and you know I'll, I'll be the first to tell you '16 uh, uh, Trump won Ohio by too much and I don't think all that stuff happened. I think it made a difference. Purging and other things made a difference in Wisconsin and Michigan that were so close. Ohio. I don't blame the Ohio loss. On that, I blame it on you know a lot of you know uh, uh, you know frankly not the best messaging, uh, abandoning a role in some other parts of Ohio. Not the loss. What's that? It, I said I just want to be clear though. I wasn't talking about the loss itself. It's more the size of the loss that if we lose. Yeah, Pennsylvania, yeah. So, but my point is Ohio by four or five, not eight. You know what correct. I mean? Correct. Correct. And what what I'd say though is to the bigger question about the status of Ohio. That has dramatically changed since uh, 16. We're a very different state now, and that's why 
we seem to be some of the only people not surprised by the fact that Biden or is ahead consistently or tied. The base of the Republican Party of Ohio used to be the folks who lived in the suburbs outside of our big cities. It's the largest voting block of Ohio. It has, you know, it's the growing part of Ohio. And when John Kasich ran or Mitt Romney or George Bush, this is where they ran up the score, not the rural parts, but these suburban parts. Well, those parts of Ohio are now blue. That's why we flipped six state house seats in, in 18 that were literally drawn to guarantee Republican victories. Well, once the suburbs turn blue, all of a sudden those are Democratic-leaning seats. It's why Sherrod won by, by more in 18 than he did in 12 when Obama won Ohio. So That's there's this myth out there. There's a myth that we're more red than we've been. We won two Supreme Court seats too, worth mentioning. Yeah, we won both Supreme Court races uh, in 18, first time we'd done that in decades. And so the myth that somehow, you know, we had a governor candidate who didn't win, Rich Cordray, Mike DeWine, was succeeded in grabbing middle-of-the-road voters. It, he benefited a little bit from Kasich's moderation. He narrowed the gender gap. But 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 other than that, you know, a, a candidate who can't do that has a hard time in Ohio. And so the, the truth is we're not more red than we've been, which people say. We're actually less red than we've been any time since 06 and 08. And we may be more permanently that way if we're smart enough to keep these new suburban voters in our camp, right. and that's mainly women. We are more permanently toss-up than we were in 06 and 08 because those were the first two years we've been blue in a long time. So right. we've actually moved the other way dramatically. And, and so now Republicans are looking at their old base is gone. It's now Democrat. We're winning, we're winning not just state house seats. We're winning – the mayor's offices. We're sweeping city. We're sweeping towns that have had Republican city councils for years. In some suburbs, we won every race on the ballot. Nineteen. We we knocked out mayors who've been there for years, and so the Ohio is a different place, and that's why we think this is a place where where Biden can certainly win. And here's the other story about Ohio, and this also is, gets the book gets into a lot of sort of the small towns of Ohio, and this is true of some other states, not all. The, even before the COVID crisis hit, Ohio's economy was not doing well under Trump. 19 was the worst jobs year here since 09. We lost construction. We lost manufacturing. Uh, the, trade, the trade craziness cost our farmers highest level bankruptcies in a decade. So even the places where Trump wants to go and say, see, I'm the economic guy, in Ohio, he can't do that. I mean, and here's how you know. Well, one, they sent Pence to Lordstown the other day where that GM plant closed. And, and and Pence said we kept all our promises here. He was better off not going. I mean, he literally insulted the people who saw their largest employer basically move to Mexico, and Trump did nothing about it. But here's the other way that you know that even in the rural parts of the state, that Trump needs to carry big time because he's lost these suburbs. We in 19 literally had in towns that Trump won 60-40 or better. Uh, I'll name a few, and you'll know them. Ironton, which is right on the border of West Virginia. Coshocton in the middle of sort of central eastern Ohio, Norwalk, Archbold. We had candidates for mayor, Democrats, take on incumbent mayors in those towns. And in each of the towns and you so just mentioned, that we have lost 60 40. David, just to quickly, so people understand that, that aren't from here yeah. like you and me, how big are these towns? They're small towns, but they're the county seats of, of red counties. Right. And they are total, they have been seen correctly as the places where Trump runs up in the big numbers. And he did in 16. In each of the towns I just mentioned, a Democrat running won by 60-40 or better against an incumbent Republican. 
and, and I'll give you the, the most dramatic That's example incredible. is the new mayor of Ironton, a Democrat, 28 years old, knocked out the incumbent 72 to 28. And and his name is Sam Cramblett. I called him up after he won. And we we really focus in Ohio on helping win at all levels every single year. You know this this um, the, the the need for police reform and the COVID crisis show you why you want good mayors and city councils. By the way, but I called up Sam, and I said, Hey Sam, how in the world did you win seventy two twenty eight? And he said, Our town's dying, and no one's yeah. done anything about it from the other side, and our people know it. So when I came along and ran, I was the only change they saw. Now, I'm yep. not predicting that Trump's going to lose that town, but if a Democrat won the mayor's race 72-28, Donald Trump, I think, will struggle to win the red parts of our state by as much as he did in 16. And you combine that with with us winning in the suburbs and us running up huge scores in the cities, and right. all of a sudden you have a path to winning Ohio. That's and by the way, that's won. when, to your right. question, correct, he won massively in the r- rural areas. Our, our turnout in our cities wasn't too bad, but he, he, he this, the rural areas, and this is where the Clinton campaign did not do what they need to do. They pulled out of most of Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin, so the rural losses in all of our Midwest states were overwhelming, and there there aren't enough Democrats in our cities to overcome what happened there. Um, and, and so, so his formula for winning is in great danger, as is the general formula for Republicans winning Ohio. If they don't have the suburbs. That means they have to run up the score huge in the rural areas, and in the end, those aren't the biggest population areas. Oh, but here's where your question gets back to my book. Yeah, Go ahead. yeah, and yeah, we are we are winning where the state is growing. They are they are winning where the state is shrinking. I want to win everywhere, but if you're going to pick where to win, you'd rather win where you're growing than where you're shrinking. And that's why I say we could be on a more solid footing long term by the current change than we ever were back in '06 and '08. Right. Um, but but again, That's to great. your to That's your great. question, what does this mean? My worry about Trump, and I think you'll share it, is the further he's behind, the more he's going to want to suppress the vote and cheat his way to re-election. Yes. And I think this election, more than any other, even more than 04, is going to come down to not just getting the vote out, but protecting the right to vote, protecting against what Russia does, protecting against you know, quote unquote consolidation that will lead to the kind of lines we saw in Georgia, uh, which yep. they want to happen, sure. protecting against attacks on vote by mail. And my worry is that, that they're, the more desperate they are, the more they'll try shenanigans that are, are not just inappropriate, but illegal. And, and that's obviously, again, one of the one of the parts of the book I've written is is one such scenario that we should all be looking out for, it, along with many others that, frankly, I've covered in other books. So tell people about the book a little bit. I, I read it, by the way, folks, The Voter File, political thriller, terrific book. Um, as I said in the beginning of the show, rave reviews. You know, when you get a great review from the Wall Street Journal, um, that's, that says something. I mean, not that it's a partisan book. It's really not at all. Um, but still, you know, you, you might expect just because you're the Democratic Party chair. And um, and so, you know, what what led you to, to, to the plot and thinking about it? Well, or did you just want to tell people a little bit about it? You know, and and, uh, and sure, take- yeah. So the the my all my books are basically trying to get folks to really see the inside of politics. And you know, like you, I'm a consumer of political fiction and and political drama on TV. But often when I see it, I I you know roll my eyes. That's not at all close to what, how it really works. So the point of all my books is to actually give a front row seat to to 
real politics. And one of the better compliments I get for my books is, and, and you just not to go through the first one, but the first book literally was about a Russian oligarch rigging an American election. And well, I, I should wrote have it said before that, by the way, is, is that people yeah. said eerily. So that kind of got me started. Right. And, and, the, and, and the reason, you know, and I think the reason they end up being somewhat prescient is because I'm trying in my mind as a writer to capture the reality of how things work, which also puts me in a position of actually trying to think through what would realistic approaches to making a mess of American politics looks like, look like. And that's why, you know, I end up, I think I put myself in the mindset of someone who is actually thinking these things, which is, you know, everyone from Putin to Karl Rove to you name it. Uh, but my main goal has always been to try and tell a good story, and I'm, I'm complimented by people who say that they they read it in one sitting. And by the way, Bill Clinton once called me up out of the blue and told me that he read he read The People's House in one sitting, and he's he's read this book too. But he's the other thing I like I to hear I is I read your book in one sitting. Um, but a, I'm not as smart as as Bill Clinton as most of us aren't. But b, uh, you know. Uh, kids at home uh, who are in, in the situation we're now in and uh, a lot of work during a political year. But I would tell you that I sat down maybe four times to read David's 400 page book and uh, it, it flows and it's interesting and it's a thriller. So if you like spy novels and that kind of stuff, it's, it's not just political, you know, um, there's a lot right. of other aspects of it that are fascinating. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and so job one is always a good story. And you know, my main character is a reporter for the Youngstown Vindicator, sort of smaller town paper that's struggling. He's always trying to dig up, but he, dig up stories, of course. But he always finds himself kind of grabbing the 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 tail of a tiger and not knowing at the time, and all of a sudden it blows up much bigger than he expects. So in this book, he he's literally kind of struggling financially. Uh, his paper has been bought. I, I actually wrote this before the Vindicator got bought out, but it got bought out for real and in my book. Um, it's just you see things. He, <laughs> I don't know how apparently you at some point if you've got some sort of a gift we don't know about. Well, it, it, I mean, the problem is seeing journalism decline is something that is sadly happening, and I I've tried to capture in my main character what it's like for reporters to live through that. So yeah. he's kind of off on this. Uh, he's trying to follow a tip that a a special election for a Supreme Court case in Wisconsin, something weird happened. And he and he and he not he he, he follows a tip he, he would have never followed if he weren't in dire straits to find a story because he's now a freelancer and he's basically uh, only paid if he gets stories. Um and you know a woman who's a data director for a campaign basically says to him and I'm not gonna say too much more because people will read the book, when he gets to Wisconsin, he sits down with her and she says and she's just she's just very sort of refreshingly honest person. I ran the data for this campaign, and there's no way in hell we won the campaign. Something yep. weird happened, and that's when he starts looking into. And he he kind of doesn't believe it at first. She introduces him to the voter file and how it works. And next thing you know, he's this is the tip of a massive iceberg, because as he as he says, there's there's no reason anyone would go to this degree. To win one special race in one state, there's something bigger happening, and that's exactly what he gets into. But you know, one aspect of the voter file that I really uh, hope hope people find important is, uh, and without getting again too much in the plot, is there's a lot in it about um, the growing you know spread of just monopolization of our of our entire country's economy, and that's sort of also at the heart of the plot. Um, is it, and it gets into you know there's scenes and. A small town in Ohio named Tranquility, which is not far from Cincinnati, a, a farmer 
who's dying on the vine because of all the you know the, the, his old industry is now owned by corporate large corporate and many foreign oh, interests. I, You've got banks and internet folks. Yeah, so I try you know all of my books try and get into and again this is where I hope people not you know people right now are so consumed with the day to day of real politics sometimes they don't think they have time to read fiction and my my goal of my books is to actually not just tell a good story but to have people also be thinking through what's really happening. So the first book was all about the the curse of gerrymandering to our politics. The second book was all about dark money. Um the third and, and what a Koch brothers operation could really do if they wanted. The, that was called the wingman. And the third book's all about you know the the data work I talked about gerrymandering again as well as the overwhelming power of monopolies. And and so when we're watching the debates right now about Facebook and media and all that. I mean, the book gets into a lot of that stuff, um, and I, I hope people find it interesting, partly for that reason. Yeah, um, and and I, I mean, all that incredibly important. There's two things I want to do. I, I want to ask you about about you know writing the book and all of that just a little bit more, but I also want to make a point before I forget, which is, you know, I, I'm very clear on this show. We, I've got friends who are, are maybe they call themselves socialists. I'm very much a capitalist. Um, and believe, you know, I've started a number of small businesses. I suppose I would have to be. I also believe very much in regulated capitalism, you know, and universal health care and things of this nature. But, you know, the, the thing that, that, that I really feel like Democrats ought to embrace more, Elizabeth Warren certainly has, not everybody has, is the damage that monopolies do to our economy, which you talk all about in this book. I mean, I've talked to some incredibly smart, incredibly wealthy people, one here in Ohio that I'll talk to you at some point about offline, you know, who said, you know, if they'd started the businesses they started 30, 40 years ago today, because of monopolies, they could never get started. They couldn't compete. And yeah. it just seems yeah. to me like, you know, I wish I do wish Democrats more would would embrace their inner Teddy Roosevelt and go back to what a Republican said over a hundred years ago about the danger right. of of you know of monopolies and monopolistic power and how you just it, it stifles innovation, it depresses wages, it keeps the products we're being supplied overpriced and frankly for lack of a nice word, crappier. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen it in certain industries that don't have a lot of competition often just because the way we're set up, you know, whether it's cable TV or other things. And so it's frustrating as hell, you know, and and I, I wish yeah. Democrats would embrace this more as a headline part of their platform. I totally agree, and I did a lot of research for the book to get into this. And one of those pieces of research was watching old Elizabeth Warren speeches. You know, she she obviously ran for president, and I think you know I think she's a great she was a great candidate. She'll be a great advocate no matter what happens after Biden wins. But I I think that her early warning signs on monopolization uh, and some of the speeches she's given are things everyone should watch because before others were talking about it there's more talk about it now uh, especially with social media and and these large media companies like Facebook but Warren was the first to do it and and you'll see in my president who's a a, a woman democrat president you'll see kind of a little bit of a Warren like edge in terms of her hunger to deal with monopolies and not only that, her concern that it, it affects everything you talked about, wages, consumer protection, prices. But in a world in a in a in a um Citizens United world, it also affects political power. And so these monopolies are able to then take everything they're getting through through the economic imbalance 
and then use it to get themselves the politicians that never touch the problem. And so it's it it just gets bigger and bigger, and that's that's you know that's a big part of the book, and it's a real concern, and um, and I think it's something that we have to tackle. And I I totally agree with you. I actually think I got a letter. Um, I get interesting mail from um, my books, you know, and my books. I try very hard to make them not partisan. I want I I don't want only Democrats to read them and like them. No, I mean you didn't. Yeah. So I got an email from a. I literally got a. I got an email the other day from a Republican who worked in the Nixon White House who said, I love your book, and you are so right about the problems of monopolies. And I wow. think this is a, a the next of big of a big issue. Now, gerrymandering should not be a partisan issue. Everyone should be against rigged districts. And the monopolization and the way it affects small business and consumers and is dominating our politics is something that that I think is something that, that the next president working with Democrats can do something about. And if they do it right, I actually think it's something that Republicans would also – voters at least, not bought-off politicians – would actually agree with. I mean and, – and, and I do think it's, it's a huge you – know, the, the book is called The Voter File. We almost yep. called it The Oligarchs because so much of it is about this issue. About this, right? Because, I mean, we saw this, that there, that there were – I mean – a whole number of these oligarchs who emigrated to the U.S. but still had massive connections back to Russia, and a lot of that money went into, you know, the I mean, to Mitch McConnell, the the National Republican Senatorial Committee, right. places that because they're American, but they're in joint businesses, you know, with with Deripaska and some of these, you know, some of these oligarchs in Russia, and it's like, do you can you actually really trace where the money's coming from? You know, I mean, how can you right. keep foreign money out of our elections when we've got that kind of a system. I mean, you just, can't. I yeah. mean, one of the greatest moments that we should all watch again is when Barack Obama said this allows foreign uh, – Citizens United will allow foreign money into elections. And Alito said no and shook his head, and Obama was right. And and the, again, the second book of mine gets into this a lot. This book does. Once you have massive economic interests and a political system, thanks to Citizens United, that can't keep up with enforcement in any way because so much that you'd want to get rid of is actually legal. You have a system where it's a wash in this stuff, and there's no way – if you find out five years after the fact, you're doing well. Okay. Um, and so you know, one of the things about life right now, and, and my hope is that obviously we want – I want Biden to win, but my second hope is that he sees that he is – you know, uh, he's older in years. That he sees that this is a moment where he could be more than a caretaker. He's he could be transformational and really take on some of these big issues as his legacy. Um, I mean, I re because whether it's monopolies, whether it's cleaning up the corruption, whether it's really ending gerrymandering once and for all. I mean, there there. I mean, this this COVID crisis is showing us just how warped we've become. Where you got a stock market going up, you got the biggest billionaires still making money. You got you got frontline workers dying and getting you know one-time checks, and that's it. I mean, we are broken, and and the the win in November is not is getting rid of Trump, but it's opening up the opportunity to finally do something about all this stuff. And yep. in, in some ways, my books are a, a, a backdoor way to write fiction 
that tries to capture some of the deep dysfunctions in our system that need to be addressed. Well, that's the best fiction that's out there is the fiction that has a message, right? I mean, we're supposed to, right. to learn something from that fiction that applies. Um, I'm going to quickly read, do another ad, and then I'm going to ask you a quick question about, about your, you know, writing your book. Cause as a writer, I'm interested. And then I'll probably do one more ad. So we'll be done. And then we can maybe do a broader political conversation if that's good. Great. Um, Okay. But, uh, here we go, folks. So look, you know what I hate when your social media pops up with summer vacation pics from five years ago? Great memories, but ugh, I look like I, I, it's like when, it, let me try this again, folks. It's like, when did these wrinkles and bags around my eyes show up? Not this summer. No more pop-up pics of deep wrinkles, fine lines, and bags under my eyes. And nope, I didn't get surgery. I got Plexiderm. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags, all in the comfort of your own home in minutes. Plexiderm Goes on clear, lasts for hours. Nobody will know your secret. Um, go try Plexiderm.com and use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. Or try a $14.95 trial uh, pack today by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mention the code VOICES again. So that's try Plexiderm.com and use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle plus an additional $10 off. Or go for a fourteen ninety five trial pack and call one eight hundred six eight five one two nine two. That's one eight hundred six eight five one two nine two. Use the code Voices, uh, folks. We're all doing Zooms and the rest, and and video, and you know we don't all look as naturally young as David Pepper. So check out Plexiderm. There you go. Um, now let's get back to your. Uh, I, I'm interested as a writer, and I know there are interested writers who listen. I've written a book before, but mine was nonfiction. Um, how do you find the time and the inspiration as a man who I know is running the Democratic Party here in, a, in the seventh biggest state, right, in the country? Um, you've got uh, a happily married man, two kids. You're, you, some would say you're busy. So what do you, how do you do it? Like, wh when do you find time? What do you do for all those writers out there who are looking to, 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 to maybe try their hand at nonfiction, fiction or anything else? So uh, what I'd say is I, I, I envy the professional writer who that's all they do because if that's all you did, you'd, you'd turn out a lot more and it would probably be easier and better. But what I'd say to people who, who uh, are thinking about writing, start writing. That's all I did. And I, in 2012, after seeing one impact of gerrymandering for the next, I thought I wanted to write a book about it, which is, by the way, the world's worst idea for a fiction novel. So I had to figure out how to make it exciting. Um, but what I would do is honestly, like I, I don't watch – I used to, but I decided I did not need to watch the same news on MSNBC for three straight hours. So I don't watch too much news at night. I don't golf. And with two little kids at home, like if they're taking a nap I get on a weekend, I get a chapter in. I'll wake up at 6.30 or 7. I'll write for an hour. I'll get a chapter in. My free advice would be try and come up with a routine where you're writing regularly. You know, you don't want to put something down for weeks and then pick it back up. You almost have to start over. But if you're very busy like I am and you are, just, you know, replace something on your routine that isn't, frankly, generally that great anyway, like wasting too much time watching TV or something. And, and the good thing for us is we're in the we're right now in the land of sports losing. So it's not like I've been wasting that much time on sports in Cincinnati. I'm a sports fan, but we just haven't been good. So I've cut out <laughs> stuff that wasn't productive. And I, I'll put when I'm in the heart of writing a book or editing a book, you know, I'll do something at night after the kids are in bed. I'll do something in the morning. And if I do all that, I can get a book done in about a year. 
if I were only doing a book, I could probably do it a lot quicker because I go pretty quick. But but that it, but the key is, as any writer will tell you, keep going. Don't stop. Don't put it down. Come up with a routine that works for you so you're working on it on a regular basis. Well, I think that is actually great advice. That's what you have to do. I mean, I think as, as somebody, I, I still write pieces for the Daily Beast, and a lot of what I do is writing ads. And any writing, just get yourself going. You know, I mean, find those times, get yourself going and then just, you know, sometimes it'll start to flow. And you're right. Early morning, late night. Those are good times. Um, but we're all locked at home right now. You know, if you have kids, they take a nap, jump in there. Um, so I want to talk right. politics with David. Um, I, I'm going to get the last our last ad out of the way right now. And then let's have a quick discussion about Midwest, Southwest, what you see, you know, coming down the pike. Um, politically. So we'll get there in a second. But folks, I just want to talk to you about the clean phone. Uh, The dramatic rise in COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations is alarming. Of course, half the states in the nation, including some of our largest, most populous states, have increased caseloads. California has already mandated wearing face masks when outdoors. By the way, so so plenty of other states. I wish ours were doing it, although we are in our bigger counties right now. even the governor of Texas is strongly advocating wearing face masks. A little bit late to that, but okay. How do you keep yourself and your family safe? Beyond face masks, one of the biggest carriers of bacteria and virus is your cell phone. With the clean phone and its use of UVC light technology, the same technology used in hospitals to keep our first responders safe, you can sanitize your phone, earbuds, jewelry, credit cards, even car and house keys in minutes, killing 99.9% of bacteria and viruses as well. Right now, the clean phone comes with two with three two-day shipping. And you can add KN95 face masks to your order. We all need to defend ourselves and our family against the increasing COVID infection rates. Go to, uh, sorry, go to the newdealshop.com and get and purchase the clean phone right now. Get one for your home. Get another for your office if you need to. Go to the newdealshop.com and order the clean phone. Stock up on KN95. Isn't it just N95 or am I wrong with that? Face mask. In any case, be prepared and stay well. Newdealshop.com. All right, that's our ads for the show. So, David, we we know we, we've got this guy who's who's successfully won election in Ohio, who runs the the uh, Ohio Democratic Party, but also is active. I know you're you're in touch with your brethren or sister sisterin around in other states. I mean, so let's start with the Midwest, right? We know that a number of polls have shown Biden either tied or ahead. Um, We've got, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and and Michigan are looking really good. The Cook political report yesterday just moved Wisconsin and Pennsylvania to lean Democrat. They already had uh, Michigan there. Um, but, you know, we're seeing stuff. There was a poll that came out in Missouri that had Democrats up to. There's a, there, apparently there was an article, I believe it was in Vanity Fair, I read. I think it was Gabriel Sherman, who usually knows his stuff, that the Trump campaign's internal polling had them down two, had them down, I think, one point, something like that, in Kansas. I mean, you know, Iowa, we've seen polling showing us ahead. So, I mean, we're not just looking right. now at, at first or second tier swing states. Like, we've moved to third tier. I'm, I'm starting off with the Midwest because that's where we're located. What are your thoughts? I mean, is this ephemeral? Do you think we could win this kind of a, a landslide? What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are that that given everything that's happening – we should not play small ball, but we also can't make the mistakes of of 16. So you've got to keep campaigning as hard as you can all over Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Don't take those leads for granted, and, and that did happen in 16. But right. I will say, you know, here my this again goes back to some of the the uh, skepticism you hear in my book about what could happen from the other side. 
um, for for several reasons, you I think you go for broke and play on offense. You know, the fact that Trump is forced to spend eighteen million dollars right now on TV in Ohio, that's the best thing going for Wisconsin. That that Trump is stuck fighting for his life in a in a state he won by eight. And the fact that we're up a little bit in Arizona and Florida, and we should just keep the pressure on in these states. And there's several reasons. One, that's the best way to win Michigan and Wisconsin if he's stuck fighting us here. It's like we're playing on his side of the soccer field, not ours. Secondly, I do worry what happens if it's a close election that he loses by a few electoral college votes that he and Bill Barr will spend the coming weeks trying to steal it back. The best way to avoid that, win by so much, have that map be so blue that even Barr says to a crazy Trump, hey, sorry, you're done. We can't we can't overturn that. We can they can overturn a close one. They'll try and do what they did in Florida, but in, in 2000. But if it's if it's a blue Arizona and a blue Ohio and a blue Florida and a toss up Missouri, that the the idea that they would try and turn that around, I think, would be absurd. But even bigger than that, because I'm so concerned, as I'm sure you are, as a father of young kids, this this is about rejecting Trumpism so loudly that the world sees, okay. That's the America we thought we knew, and they rejected Trump as much as we do. And also, I, I want every Republican that is a coward, and it's most of them, sadly, to – they're not going to not become cowards. But I want them in the future to think they're more scared of not speaking up to racism and Trumpism and corruption because they lose so badly than the current fear they have of a mean tweet sent against them. So to me, a decisive victory beyond some narrow, small ball electoral college of a couple votes is really important for history. And and you don't think that way if you think you're, you, you, you know, you only have a chance in Wisconsin. But when you start seeing the map we're seeing now, yeah, you bet we should work hard to turn Ohio blue. That matters if we're blue. It matters if Florida's blue because it sends a much bigger message and hopefully gets us past this awful era. And the 30 percent or so of, of Trump people who think that they're the silent majority realize, oh, my gosh, like 70 percent of us of this country rejected us. Or not, maybe not 70, but a huge portion rejected us, even places that we thought were ours. I think all that is a very important long-term uh, effect that a good election win would have. I mean, I would agree. Look, I, I feel like after the Bush years, you know, uh, which now, sadly, and I'm not saying they were good and that Bush, in my estimation, wasn't one of still one of the five worst presidents. But but, you know, when after Katrina and Iraq and all of this, when Obama in 2008 won by seven plus points and won like Nebraska's second district and won Indiana and won North Carolina you know, in these places that Democrats had not really won, I think that sent a, that, as you're saying, sent a message beyond just winning where we normally win. You know, and I feel like at right. this point, um, it's for a number of reasons, right? Down ballots important. We need to we the Cook political report, by the way. I mentioned Wisconsin and, and because we're talking about the Midwest and Pennsylvania also has now officially moved Georgia to toss up straight toss up, which is incredible if you think about it. And, you know, I bring that up. Right. Georgia has at least one to two House races we can win. They've got 
two Senate races because of a retirement early by Johnny Isaacson, who was ill. So we could win two Senate races. And then you've got both houses of the state legislature. Apparently, if we were to win big enough, we could win. We could win the state house in Texas. We can take back state legislature. One of them, I can't remember if the Senate or the house in, Georgia, in, in Arizona, we're only down by one or two. Now we're down further in Ohio, but you know, as you point out, winning six seats last time, we won a bunch of state, you know, uh, uh, of these legislative seats. We get back in the ball game and they don't just have the, we don't have to hear the ravings of these crazy Nino Vitalis anymore you know, having the kind of weight. He was, by the way, somebody who's a state rep who thinks that wearing masks is bad or something because God said so. Right. Um, you know, I, I just feel like he now thinks taking tests is. He also is against testing. He doesn't right. think anyone should take a test. I mean, these people are crazy, yeah. and, and so, and then on top of it, yeah. I just think for our political culture, if you can say Ohio and Iowa rejected him, if you can say, you know, Texas and Arizona rejected him, if you can, I mean, you can totally. say Georgia. And North Carolina, I mean, obviously, the most important thing at first is winning. Pedal to the metal in all of the, the most winnable states. But this is where I hope, you know, Steyer, Bloomberg, other folks jump in. I mean, we will rarely have the kind of opportunity. You know, right now, we have an opportunity, I mean, quite seriously, if it's the kind of blowout that we're hoping for, we could win eight or ten Senate seats if it's that big a blowout. Right. You know, we and we you, win win Ohio, you win Ohio. You win Ohio. Yeah. You win Ohio. You win a Supreme Court majority, and you end gerrymandering. So, there, yeah, there are other effects. And and like you said, winning first and foremost is key. But it, but the other thing that Democrats often will get caught up in, it's not a zero sum game. Like we can, you know, of course we need. I, I and by the way, we have great chairs of parties in Wisconsin and Michigan. Of course, we got to win those states first. They're going to get the most support. But what we shouldn't do, and there have been a few Democratic groups that have done this, is publicly say we're not going to be in these. No, we should be everywhere. There are good Democrats in all these states. They're fighting really hard. We have good candidates in Iowa and Georgia, and, and there's no reason to project or actually not compete in those places because in a year like this, you can win those places even if you know you have to win Wisconsin first. And, yeah. and that's in Ohio. We have a once in a generation opportunity to end ger gerrymandering, win the Supreme Court majority, uh, pick up seats at different levels, pick up some congressional seats. And so, yeah, we get whenever I hear, well, we have to win those others. So of course we do. It's not zero sum. We can actually do huge things. And as bigger than any race is send this signal that we are not a that the Trumpism is not America, at least after 2020. It was a momentary aberration. It was when some things uh, went awry and this guy snuck through by the Electoral College thinly, you know, and this is and this is not who we are. And we've been sending that message pretty clearly in every election cycle, the off year ones in Virginia and, and in, you know, in Kentucky, winning the governorship back and whatever, um, you know, and, and we sent it obviously in a huge way in 18. And, and this needs to be kind of the 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 high point Absolutely. of that where we reject it. Completely. And, uh, and well, I know you feel what's interesting, right. though. Yeah. I was going to say, no, what's interesting ahead, about America is uh, we kind of are a country that goes forward and back. And race has always been sort of our original sin. And we've, and, and not including women for suffrage. And so the history of our country is not this perfect move forward. Uh, sadly, you know, it's you move forward. Sometimes, like Jim Crow, we step back for 70 years. And so I think so. Trump, in one way, isn't an aberration. We've had movements forward, and then, and then all of a sudden, Obama wins, and there's a backlash. But then we've always picked up and moved forward again. And so that's what we have to do in 20: is say, okay, 
it was backward. We went the wrong way. It's awful what's happened. We got a lot of work to do, but let's win in November and then take big steps to move forward. Because if if the the recent you know if, if the the need for police reform and dealing with structural racism and the COVID crisis can't all you know inspire us that w- to do that a ho- a hell of a lot of work that we have not done like nothing's going to, and that's the opportunity that comes by winning in the way that we 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 hope to win in November. That's exactly right. I couldn't agree with that more. And again, I you know we're we're seeing those opportunities. I you know we're, we started with the Midwest, but I mentioned Texas. I mentioned Georgia. Um, you don't want Trumpism, you know, they're used to, they've used to, the Republican parties had Texas as kind of an anchor, you know, a large electoral state and some of these other states, Georgia is another one, you know, and, and you start taking those away, then hopefully they have to reform. They have to move to a place where they know they can't win, uh, when they're, when they're behaving and, you know, I mean, behaving is a nice way of putting it. Um, I would call at the top, they're committing crimes. Um, but, and then we get stuck with senators, uh, I know one of the favorites, yours and mine, Senator Rob Portman, Republican from Cowardville, right. Ohio, who refuses to stand up to Trump, even though we know he knows everything that's going on is wrong. Right. We need to sh- we need we need to show those people that there's a price to pay for that. Um, so absolutely, and uh, my hope is that you know sometimes again not to get out of ourselves, sometimes in the midterms, and I live this myself as a candidate, the the opposite party, the president has a better has a better midterm, and my hope is that even if we win in November, that the damage of Donald Trump is so deep that even though they probably think they're in a better shape because it's a midterm, that cowards like Rob Portman and others who went along with everything, who wouldn't impeach, who covered up crimes, that the Trump stain is so great that they also suffer losses in 22 in, in yep. midterms where they normally wouldn't. Uh, we we have to make that the case. I, I love this new ad by um, – the Lincoln Project. It's about you know Cory Gardner and McSally and others saying, you know, know their names. people's names. Yeah. They all went along with it. I think that's hugely important too. That you that we need to, to rid ourselves. There are certain places where I don't get me wrong. Everybody should go out, vote, knock doors, do everything. You know, I'm not generally sanguine about we're going to knock out some of the worst collaborators and say Oklahoma, you know, or Wyoming or whatever. But but there but the vast majority of states. We can win, you know, and and you never know. I mean, Wyoming, I, I say that they had a Democratic governor for two terms not very long ago, you know, Freudenthal. And and, and obviously, look what happened with Doug Jones down in Alabama. Right. There's simply no right. place that we shouldn't be fighting to hold these people accountable for the fact that they sat here. Absolutely. Either watched this happen and covered up for it or they actively have engaged in it. Um, it's it's horrifying, you know, and so they need to pay a price. Um, I think the best thing we can do, you know, Absolutely. we've talked about all this. Maybe we'll end with, uh, you know, any you you tweeted out a thread that went very viral um, after we found out about the bounties on our troops. It's another long line, you know, of sickening things that have come to our attention. Failures, I, I think one would argue traitorous behavior by Donald Trump. Um, and you tweeted out your experiences with a young, younger, anyhow, Vladimir Putin. Um, I think that's always interesting to people. Do you feel like uh, talking a little bit about that and maybe what your thoughts sure. are on, on all this? 
Yeah, I mean, my only worry is I recently, after tweeting this thread, got a I just got a invitation to be on a Russian television station to talk about it, and I looked it up, and it's actually the television station of the Russian Defense Services. So I worried I might have talked too much about what I've done. But my first <laughs> job after college, I worked for a think tank in Washington that that was a, I was all about international affairs back then before I moved back to Ohio. And I worked in St. Petersburg, Russia. And the reason I have a Russian oligarch as my, you know, uh, not so good character in my books is because I was not trying to predict anything. It's because I know Russia well, and I sort of saw Russia in the mid '90s as all what happened ended up happening. But my most sort of Forrest Gump uh, aspect of this time there was my project was trying to help St. Petersburg. And this is back when we got along well, and Yeltsin and Clinton were working together. Our job was to help St. Petersburg, the most western of Russia's cities, undertake the kind of economic reform that any new market would want to undertake. And it was very high profile. And the mayor of St. Petersburg, who was this very high profile Russian reformer named Anatoly Subchak, was our chair, our co-chair of the commission that I staffed. But his right-hand person and the point person for our group was his vice mayor, the, the young, early 40-something quiet, severe, stern uh, gentleman named Vladimir Putin. And as I wrote in the tweet, we met with him all the time. He was sort of the guy who would make the trains run on time, not just for us, but for the city. He was not nearly the impressive figure that a lot of, you know, a lot of the other Russian leaders of that city were charismatic and inspiring in different ways. They were the reformers who stood on tanks uh, when, when, you know, there was a pushback in the early 90s. He was much more quiet I honestly, you know, at the time, I would have never predicted – I would have predicted that the mayor would be the next president of Russia, never would have thought his quiet, you know, serious right. vice mayor would be anything. And his other vice mayors were actually impressive as well. But as I wrote in the tweet tweet thread, you know, a couple of years in the meeting with him, and we knew he'd been a spy at some point, but it wasn't like that was so rare. Um, you know, he hadn't spoken a word of English the whole time. Um we always had an interpreter with us, and two years in – and by the way, the scene in my first book literally picks up on this story. I, I have a scene happen very similar to this. Halfway through a meeting, a couple years into all of our meetings, the interpreter screwed up a word clearly translating him into English, and it wasn't a simple word. It was something complicated. I knew enough Russian to keep up with most of it, but she screwed it up. He heard her say the wrong word in English, and he corrected her in English immediately, and that's when – you know, yeah. paying attention, I was like, "Wait a second! This guy has been sitting here for two years, never let on any English, listening to everything we've said, knowing what we've said, on a project that we were working together with him on. It wasn't like we were, you know, antagonists." And so my point is, when I hear about Trump's phone calls with Putin, Trump's Trump's, um, you know, meetings, tearing up the interpreter's notes, it's horrifying how much this guy is playing Trump. I mean, every meeting. Every clearly everything they're doing on the Russian side is recorded. Everything Trump says, he's digging a deeper and deeper hole. In in some way, every part of it is compromised. Whatever he said in Helsinki in a closed meeting is something that could be used against him later, and and they know that. And so every time he engages, just like my little story, and people said to me, well, "You got fooled by Putin." I'm like, "Yeah, I was 22 years old." Uh, I learned a lesson. This guy's a savvy operator. Forgive me. He literally was a I'm not the 73 year old president. Yeah, yeah, I'm not the 73 year old president of the United States not having interpreters, you know, notes be kept. 
so I learned mine in my lesson 22, and this was one something we worked on with them. But the point is, this guy is a savvy operator. Uh, I think he was savvy uh, in, in before 16. I mean, I'm not saying this is a compliment. I'm just saying as an operator, he is running circles around Trump, and Trump it will, is clearly giving them to them gifts again and again. So when I hear about phone calls all through March and April, who knows what the heck Trump's agreeing to? But I'll tell you who does know, the ones who are recording every sentence of it and can use it against him whenever they want to, and he knows that. So See, I'm one of these guys of who, who – yeah, I believe the, 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 the most – I think in, in a couple years, and this is going to sound more like my books than most people in real life would describe it. I think in a couple years, we are going to realize how little we knew about how bad it really is. That Donald Trump's behavior the last few years where he won't stand up to Putin on one thing, that it is as deep and as dark a reason behind that as in real compromise. That's all sorts of things, not not just hotel visits, who knows, but about bribes 20 years ago back when he was in Russia. They'll have all the records on that. Um, I think there will be deep compromising material that from the very beginning has been used against him. And every step of the way since he's been president, every phone call, every meeting, every secret deal he's cut is one other item of compromise that's made him basically unable to be the president vis-a-vis Russia. And I think w- if we survive all this, and I think we will, I think in a couple of years we'll be relieved that we did because it's going to be it's going to be worse than we even appreciate right now. Right. I mean, look, part of being an analyst in anything is looking at you're looking for patterns, right? And we know the patterns of Trump's life, right? I mean, we know that he he was negotiating the the, the Moscow Trump Tower deal while he said nothing was happening with Putin, and and you know we know that the Russian mob, in a way that's almost you know, never has existed in history. The mob, the spies, and the state are all one. You know, they're they're right. on the same side. And, and so, so you know, if you know Trump's behavior, you know what we already know about from his foundation to Trump University to all these other things. The the his work with everyone from you know Felix Sater to Bayrock and these others that we know were tied to Russia, laundering Russian money. I mean, again, I think it it would be naive, frankly knowing his morality, knowing that he was bailed out by Russian money when banks here wouldn't go anywhere near him, um, that his own sons at different times admitted that Russian assets were a disproportionate part of their portfolio, um, that, you know, that, that Trump was one of the few people at times that would let shell companies with no names attached to them buy his condo units or whatever, which is classic money laundering behavior. Any reputable real estate developer would want, would make sure there was a name attached uh, to anything that was being bought. Right. I mean, you know, so you, you don't have to get into the fanciful versions of like the P tape, quote unquote, and stuff like that. I think it's as straightforward as they've got years of records on, of of him acting yeah. as a willing money launderer, uh, you know, for for their interests and God knows what else, God Absolutely. knows what worse, you know. And you look at all no, of that. I, I totally agree. I mean, and, and John Avalon, who former, you know, uh, he was an editor of mine at the Daily Beast um, at one point, is now does the CNN morning show New Day. Um, you know, he he did a segment this morning and he pointed all this out. And he also went into the 25 different times 
objectively speaking, that Trump has been soft on Putin in Russia. Everything from trying to undo sanctions um, to trying to say that when they were, you know, to when they were trying to to take, you know, uh, parts of territory to their east, you know, uh, saying, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a lot of Russians living there. That seems okay. Um, to the 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 infamous Helsinki episode. I mean, in this, we know that the, most recently Russia had bounties on our troops. Trump tries to claim he was never made aware. That's not a, even a close to reasonable explanation. Presidents, as many others who uh, work have worked for the NSC, have come out and said, of course he would have been made aware. And, you know, not only did he not do anything about it, not only has he still not done anything about it in the week since we've started talking about this, his response was to try to get uh, Putin invited back into the G7 to make it the G8. I mean, I'm sorry, but there's right. there, there's got to be an explanation there beyond, you know, it just it, it it there's no other rational explanation that makes any sense. The only two that would yeah, are no. they've got something on him, or they've promised him vast riches in the future, or both. Right. It, it's probably some combination. No, I I agree, and and I I've, I've been you know I I know you have to be careful in this stuff, and the media has been careful, but I've been frustrated from early on the coverage of this. Whether it's been the Mueller report or it's been too much golly gee whiz, why is this happening? Versus, it's really obvious what's happening. It's it's right. not. This is not some mystery. Um, it, there's one explanation that explains it. Nothing else makes sense, and nothing's. Con- Donald Trump has been so inconsistent in his behavior. He'll throw anyone under the bus, even if he got along well with them a week before, except one person. One person, he's been consistent. He, this is not a consistent human being, but with one person, he's been a hundred percent consistent all the way through, and, and that, that that's so aberrant from everything else. It's obvious, and I feel like again, I think the 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 media, and and I, again, I'm, I'm a fan of the media. I, I I hate that they get attacked all the time, but I think people have been much more kid glove about all this than again. It's like, well, gee whiz, what do you think? And, and instead of Come on. It's pretty clear what's happening. Oh, I'm a fan of a lot of folks in the media. I still think the mainstream media overall, you know, we need a new paradigm because it's not doing voters in a democracy a service. You know, their role is is not access and gossip and this and that. Their role overall right. is to inform us so people can make because the only way a democracy can exist is with informed decisions. And when anytime you sit there, whether it's due to the pressure from a conservative publisher, or whether it's due to you wanting clicks, or whatever the reason, or you don't want to be called liberal, and you don't tell people the flat-out truth, you you respond to them, you know, you respond that well, it could be that this, but it could be that that. When you treat these things as both sides, you're doing a mass disservice. You're not that people like Trump could get to where they got to if the simple truth were told the extent of what we knew about him. Before it doesn't mean that right. you wouldn't cover Hillary's emails, but my gosh, you cover Hillary's emails more than the obvious connections this guy had at various points to to, to organize crime, more than the, the number mm-hmm. of racist things that he said. I'm not talking about stuff that you didn't have proof of. I'm talking about the stuff that was just there right in front of you, you know. And I I, right. I really do think there needs to be, you know, we need I don't know how we get there rethinking how our media covers. It, it doesn't make you partisan because you're telling the truth. The Democrats are wrong. Ninety-eight percent of the time, objectively speaking, on what if we're not if we're spouting anti-science on everything from mask wearing to gunshot wounds to to global warming and the rest, well then we should be called out for it. Ninety-eight percent of the time, yeah. not fifty percent. Mm-hmm. And so, 
I don't know. And that's what I would say. I will say there's a lot of great and courageous reporters out there doing good work. They just need to be supported by the well, larger well, institutions. And that's when we get back to what you've talked about with monopolies, David, is some of the right. problem here. Well, let me tell you real quick, one, one, one data point that just came up today is this, what's the show on MSNBC that's just kicking butt versus others? Nicole Wallace. This yeah. is, she's a, she was a Republican. Like, but what is her show about? It's like just straight up truth telling. It's yep. not both sides. It's if we can dig up the truth. And again, this is a former Republican, so she wouldn't be shy about being Democrats. I think Americans want to see truth telling as opposed to just sort of people who record both sides and put it together. And so here here versus a lot of Democrats and versus Fox News and everything else here, Nicole Wallace's show has rocketed to the top because I think her style is I'm going at I'm going into the truth and I'm just going to tell it. Um, and I, you know, I think that's what, what people want. That's what people are hungry for. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a perfect place for us to, uh, to stop. I, I want to, um, remind people that, uh, the book is the voter file. It's the third in a series of, of novels that David has written about uh, a character, a fun character, Jack Sharp, your hard drinking reporter from Youngstown. Uh, it, it's a good, uh, archetype for a character, I think. Right. Um, and yep. you know it, everything from politics to to frankly goes it, it goes beyond that to you know interesting aspects of economics and it's a spy you know novel in certain ways because you certainly have a lot of of those kinds of elements in it. I, I've read it, I loved it, I couldn't recommend it more. I tell you to go back and read the other two also. But for right now, you can get it on Amazon. Where else can you get it besides that Monopoly, David? <laughs> Other spots people should go uh, for it? You can go, uh, all I would say is is it's in a lot of independent bookstores. And um, so you can go to Amazon. You can go to the website of the publisher for all the other places you can get it. And the publisher is Putnam. Um, you can go to davidpepper.com and link to, to that too. Or you can you know go to your independent bookstore. If they don't have it, order it through them. They've been very good. You know, Authors uh, like me who kind of start in another field, it's tough, and I've been very – I've been treated great by independent bookstores who have been willing to highlight uh, highlight authors like myself. So I'd also err on the side of going to them. They saved my book back in the day. They're terrific. Um, but in any case, absolutely grab the book. Again, it's we've got – it's David Pepper, chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, author, um, and, uh, and hopefully part of uh, – the solution to our winning back America in November. Thanks so much for being here, David. And we'll put all the links on the site so people can go to your book and grab it and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks. Good talking, everybody. Take care. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.